and I tell this to every every student that look for that aha moment. And once they find it, there's no way they can ignore it. And they will know that that's what they want to do. Hello, listeners. On this episode of Case Confirmed, we're really lucky to welcome our guest, Dr. Jagpreet Chudful. He is a leading expert in COVID-19 modeling. He is the director of Mass General Hospital's Institute for Technology Assessment, and he's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. His research is centered in decision science and health economics. He's co-authored over 100 research papers, and he leads a multi-institutional COVID-19 modeling consortium that aims to inform mitigation of COVID-19. In collaboration with the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization, his work informed the feasibility of hepatitis C elimination in the United States and elsewhere. His work is frequently featured in leading media, including the Boston Globe, CNBC, Forbes, NPR, and now Case Confirmed. Thank you, Dr. Chutwal. We are excited to have you. Hello. Hi, Dr. Chutwal. Thanks for joining the call. Thank you, Mira. Thanks for having me. Basically, I was really interested in in kind of doing reading about your work and your projects, um, how you got started career-wise and and becoming interested in the intersection between technology and infectious diseases. And I ask because I'm also interested pretty much in the same space, um, but I'm not too sure how you came to it. And if you can tell our listeners a little bit about your career, including like any of the twists and turns, um, that would be great. Yeah, sure. Um, So this goes back to the time when I was doing PhD Mm -hmm. in Wisconsin. Um, I started working on some theoretical mathematical problems. And I kept thinking, is that something I want to do for the next three years? And the answer was no. And definitely the answer was no for the rest of my life. So at that time, I started exploring something which is more meaningful, I can, something I can relate to. And healthcare was something that I was always interested in, but I never had an opportunity in the past to work on. And, and during that time, I happened to attend a talk. Uh, there was an invited speaker and, uh, who came to Wisconsin, Madison. And the person gave a talk on liver transplant allocation using mathematical modeling. It was very complex mathematical model. The person was talking about how we should um, match uh, donors uh, with the recipients uh, and the timing of the liver transplant. And this all will lead to maximizing the benefits, maximizing benefits to the recipients and to the society. And that was my aha moment. Wow, this is something. And I wanted to do something very similar. Like I can use my background in uh, engineering and mathematics and apply it to something which is very close to my heart and in healthcare field. And that's how it started. And then I started exploring. Uh, it happened that this person joined uh, the faculty uh, uh, of Wisconsin Medicine and he became my PhD advisor. And that's how I got stumbled into that. <laughs> yeah. What a perfect match for a PhD advisor. Yes. Someone that's really inspired you to go in that direction. That's great. So it sounds like, you know, the kind of math that you were doing before, maybe it wasn't 
directly tied to maximizing outcomes. And now you sort of had this specific goal in mind of how you can apply math towards this higher purpose. Is that kind of accurate to what you're describing? Uh, yeah, I think so. It gives more meaning to the work uh, I wanted to do and, and directly uh, see the value of that work, uh, improving the society and the improving people's lives. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So you you came to it then pretty early on in your career because that was before your PhD that you became interested, right? So mm-hmm. so it sounds like you were off to kind of focusing in the right direction early on. Would you say that, just for our listeners, would you say that there's any piece of advice you'd have for those who are considering like biostats or epidemiology or health tech as a as a career? Oh yeah, absolutely, and and I tell this to every every student that look for that aha moment, and once they find it, there's no way they can ignore it. They will know that that's what they want to do, and and follow that. Once they identify what they're passionate about, and keep following that uh, path. And I've seen from my own experience that uh, I started receiving more and more opportunities in my life, and which were taking me towards the direction I wanted to go and I was passionate about. So things start aligning up uh, once we have clarity on what we really want to do. That's how I feel, uh, it, at least from my own experience. That's really, that's really interesting. I don't know if you're into um, like Chinese or Eastern philosophy at all, but there's this concept, I think in Taoism, that's called Wu Wei, which is like going, going with the flow and not against the grain. And what you're saying is sort of reminding me of that concept where it's like you're kind of going in the direction that, you know, things things inside you are naturally pointing towards and yeah. um, <laughs> le- letting that carry your career. So that's really interesting that you say that. So it seems like opportunities keep popping up when you're sort of going in that right way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's not all rosy. There are definitely obstacles. <clears throat> we... If we have that passion, the fire inside, that will keep us driving forward. Right, right. That's great. So what are some of the most interesting projects um, and tools that you've you've developed, in your opinion? Um, I know, for example, you have this really great COVID simulator tool, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But before we go into that, is there anything else that you're that you're very excited about? Yeah, sure. So since you mentioned technology and uh, infectious diseases, uh, so let me take an example of uh, one of the projects we did with the World Health Organization. Uh, This was on hepatitis C uh, treatment. Uh, A few years back, uh, new treatments became available, which were game changer for hepatitis C. But the price was very contentious, the the cost of those drugs. So it happened in many settings, people, the payers were not actually able to afford the drugs. And uh, even though they provided a high value. uh, So the question was how, one, convincing uh, payers to um, make these drugs available and to, uh, to insurance to provide less restrictions on the who gets the drugs. Uh, we worked with the WHO to develop uh, a tool called HEPC Calculator. An interesting thing about this tool was that it utilized uh, the technology, uh, the, the mathematical modeling, uh, interactive websites, and, uh, and the health economics. And we showed uh, 
the value of trading hepatitis C in a given setting. And users can could actually go online and uh, change many of those parameters that go into the, the, the larger equations and look at the outcomes. And, and we, we did this with collaborators from the WHO and implemented 30 countries into that. And one of the things that we, the feedback we got from our primary contact person at the WHO that when he was presenting this tool uh, in, in the field in, in different countries, he started seeing a shift in people's uh, reaction and participation. Earlier, he was presenting some PowerPoint figures. And we were showing if something is cost-effective or not. But this was for the first time he saw people were very much engaged mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and made an attempt to understand cost-effectiveness uh, if this was not in their area of familiarity. So we made something which was very tangible. People could... Uh, feel it, use it, and then interact, and then look at the outcomes. And then right. and that led to some lot of discussions on how do we bring down the prices for hepatitis C drugs in countries where they are uh, more than what the value should define, and in other settings, convincing payers that these drugs provide high value, so there should not be restrictions on access to treatment. I see. Yeah. So because you created something that was interactive and it was much more engaging and drove a larger discussion. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's really great. And it also, it was just not the interactive element, but the uh, the people sometimes may see uh, mathematical models as a black box. So that oh. can have uh, create some resistance to, I don't know what it's doing, what are the outcomes, what goes in and what goes out. So by laying it out open in front of them, they could look at, change the inputs that go in the models and look at the outcomes, how they get changed. And the trust is built when we use um, this kind of framework, interactive framework. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because it's it's kind of a way of providing a transparency of what variables are going into it and why the certain, certain numbers are coming out. That's really, that makes a lot of sense. So do you think that do you, I mean, in terms of your career, have you also done a lot of tech projects that focus on dis- decision support for physicians? Uh, we have. It's not directly decision support, but more on the education side. Uh, so this is another project we worked with a foundation, uh, the largest uh, liver foundation in, in the country, ASLD. Uh, so where we developed a tool for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or, or non-alcoholic stereohepatitis, NASH, and which shows um, how the disease outcomes could change or what the prognosis would be for a given condition for a given patient. And and that was an eye-opener for uh, many uh, providers and patients looking at the, the adverse outcomes in like next five-year survival under different settings if patients progress to advanced disease. So that kind of uh, it's it's already publicly available and has been used uh, by many practitioners in uh, in the country. I see. That's great. That's great. So, in terms of your COVID simulator tool, um, could you tell us a little bit about the challenges and opportunities that are associated specifically with the COVID predictive modeling? Kind of like you were talking about before with this idea that these predictions or these these mathematical models can look like a black box. I think that's definitely been true for for COVID, I think, to the general public, right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's, not, I guess, not a huge or widespread understanding of how these predictions are made. So I'm curious to know what goes into these predictions and what variables can maybe throw off a prediction or a simulation and how accurate is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. Um, so this was back in March and April uh, 2020 uh, in the early months of the pandemic. We utilize the tools that we have developed in the past uh, from hepatitis C and other diseases, the technology, and jumped to uh, applying to these tools to COVID. And the idea was very similar that we should make these models interactive. Uh, and because one for COVID, it's it's such a new disease, so many unknowns. And over time, we were expecting to get more clarity on many of the uh, the disease parameters for that reason, we want to make an interactive so that we can first uh, update them on a regular basis and which are publicly available. And second, allow users uh, to interact with different assumptions and look at the outcomes, how they could change. Instead of being very prescriptive about this is going to happen in the future, philosophy of COVID simulator was to provide different scenarios. What if we do X, for example, if we lift restrictions today and what is going to happen? What if we do partial lifting of restrictions? In that case, we may see a different trend. So instead of telling where the future is heading, we were providing different scenarios um, and the outcomes under those scenarios. I see. Yes, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And um, I think that would have been a useful thing for the media to report as well, because I think the media in general tends to report, you know, the final conclusion that epidemiologists have come to, right? but not necessarily the process behind it. And I think what you're providing here is a sense of the process and the the potential futures and why, you know, a certain set of policies had to be implemented. Mm -hmm, Right. And and actually the, the tool was uh, picked by media more to our surprise. uh, It was uh, even in the, in the Rachel Meadows show, uh, it was shown how the interactive elements of the tool work. And then she spent five minutes describing the tool, the outcomes, and the different scenarios. So we were presently surprised that media did pick up. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I hadn't seen much of that, but I think I wasn't um, I wasn't looking for it at the time. So I definitely want to go back and watch for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That'd be great. So how does the forecasting of COVID compare like in terms of, you know, the ease or difficulty of predicting its spread to other infectious diseases, like let's say flu, for example, Mm -hmm. I know that you mentioned there's a lot more unknowns with COVID because it's, it was relatively new in the early days of the pandemic. And so there was, you know, a lot more uncertainty around it, but is there anything else that kind of stood out to you that made it maybe more challenging to predict? Um, yes, uh, there are many uh, points that stood up with COVID. One, there's so much visibility on any output that comes out of COVID models. So the scrutiny is very high. So we had to be very careful with what the outcomes were coming out, what assumptions were made. And many times we don't have good understanding of those uh, uncertain parameters. In that case, it can put us in a difficult spot. When I say S means the larger COVID uh, modeling community. And, and, and we have seen many cases where obviously the projections did not go as expected because some external factors change. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that case, it's it's difficult to then um, 
justify what the models were doing and then what uh, happened in reality if we miss that the connecting the the dots mm-hmm. um, the other factors in covid uh, behavioral element is uh, to a large extent playing a big role it's not just about the disease how it's progressing but many uh, factors outside uh, factors like uh, if a government decides to lift restrictions in a given state that's going to change the outcomes or if uh, some restrictions are applied on travel that's going to change the outcomes so those many factors which are external ones may not be known in advance so making future projections make things a little difficult i see so how soon would you say it's accurate you know in terms of relatively accurate in terms of um, projection like what's the window of time you would say that it could be trustworthy it's it's really depends upon the situation there have been cases when like within 3 4 weeks everything has changed uh, so after 4 weeks we can't really tell how mm-hmm. things would be but then there have been other times when next 3 or 4 months projections look quite uh, accurate well i'll provide one example and then where we were skeptical about the outcomes but that turned out to be a reality So this was uh, last year in in 2021, 4th of July weekend. Uh, I just came back from uh, the long weekend. And we, at that time, Delta was just appearing in the United States. So we added Delta variant in the model. And that changed the outcomes completely. So this is in back in July and trends were going down. The CDC had just lifted all the restriction on, on mask use in vaccinated people. So there was so much a uh, positive um, um, outlook in people's minds and then the moment we added delta in the model we could see new peaks coming in many states and we could clearly see the deaths uh, number of deaths per day would exceed 3000 in the future near future which seemed very hard to believe at that time and that was the unfortunate reality a few months down the road i see yeah so the variant basically change the news from more optimistic news to pessimistic news yeah uh, very quickly and yeah. um would you say that kind of along those lines how do you see the pandemic continuing to unfold in your opinion um again this in the immediate future we see things uh, going in the right direction but we can't really tell what's going to happen 6 months or 9 months down the road it's likely to come back when there's going to be more waning of immunity in the population but we don't know the extent of how bad it may look at that time yeah i think there's a lot of potential for you know new variants and and also like you mentioned the vaccine vaccinations unless people are keeping up to date with them and getting boosters and what not mm-hmm. that's also something that may not be you know quite as protective right um So that is interesting. I I think it's a challenging, you know, global situation and it's unclear, you know, exactly what what the future looks like, but um what you've said is is sort of what I would what I would expect to hear as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of policy and and things like that, do you have any ideas that come to mind for good policy around COVID prevention in the future? So I can think from 
a modeling perspective, what could be helpful? And we have brainstormed uh, a few times internally with our team. Uh, so what happened during the COVID, uh, there were several groups working in different settings. When I say settings means uh, different, like in some working on managing addressing or mitigation of COVID in schools, other than in uh, colleges uh, and other groups working on lifting of state level restrictions, some looking at the testing in different settings, so more closing of business, opening of putting restrictions on restaurants. So people, there are different groups working in different settings to address those questions in silo. Though we know that all, almost everything is interconnected, uh, so what we need is, uh, I call it a super model, which connects these models in, in different domains and settings. And to give an example, like if there's an outbreak happening in a given county, there's an outbreak detection tool, which can pick it up and then can inform policies around if there is a need to bring back masks in that area, is there restrictions on schools or restrictions on uh, large gatherings in that community? Um, and if that would be later, uh, could be traveled to other parts of the, the state? So if we have that interconnected network of models, that will be an ideal tool to uh, address policies. We don't look at things in silo, but whatever is happening, we, we, the message is spread in, in different um, settings and the models are being used to inform those policies. So, so currently the models are all very, you know, they're all very siloed. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense that that would be a big problem. What do you think is the barrier to actually unifying these different models? Um, <clears throat> I think somebody just needs to sit and then design and put things together. It just, it takes time and I probably see. this is the right time. Earlier we were all, working on uh, addressing the questions as they were coming up and everything was very time sensitive. So developing such a framework takes time. And if it's not ready, then we can't use it when the problem comes. So yeah, that, ma that makes sense that there needs to be kind of like a more unified approach. I think that's a common theme actually in a lot of other aspects of public health too. Um, so it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that here. Do you think that there's, an opportunity to integrate new data streams into the model? Yes, there. I, I believe there would be as we get more understanding of the, the waning of immunity from different vaccines and different variants. Uh, if we have uh, more data on the, uh, the variants, uh, so all these can be put together, which many, many times we have not, uh, could not put together earlier. I see. Yeah, because everything happened very quickly, right? Yeah. So there was a constant, you know, shifting of priorities. And, and that, like you said, now might be a good time to develop something like that, which is great. Do you have any like other ideas or, you know, sort of projects in the pipeline for the future that you're maybe excited to share? Th things that seem exciting, like any recent um, innovations or projects you're excited to work on? Um, another problem, and the and this is 
again got highlighted during the COVID is it's a big public health crisis is the opioid epidemic that we're facing in the country. So we are working with uh, the NIH on developing some tools uh, on similar lines, which can be used by policymakers to address the, the and come up with policies that can address the epidemic, which uh, seems to be getting worsened uh, every year. A lot of work needs to be done. And, and, and there are people who are genuinely interested in working and, and they're working on these, this problem. And it's just so unfortunate to see that the, it's, the, the deaths continue to uh, go up uh, despite all the efforts that have been made. So there needs to be some major shift uh, to happen to uh, stem the tide. These days, do you think that the medical education community and the medical curriculum is teaching about um, the opioid crisis more? Do you think that it's being featured in medical education as much as it should be? Yeah, I, I think so. It's 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 getting there, but it's still not uh, to the level which is where we see the we have uh, sufficient number of providers who can provide treatment for opioid use disorder. It's not there. It's, it's, yeah, it's one of the barriers. People, it's so hard for people to get treatment. It's easier to get uh, illegal drugs in the country than to get a legal treatment. So that's an unfortunate reality. Right, right, right. What you just said definitely um, mirrors a lot of what I've heard, and that's really unfortunate. So it's great that you're, you know, potentially going to help work on this problem. I think that's really very much needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that we've had a good conversation. I'm trying to think if, if there's any more questions I have for you in our remaining few minutes. I guess what I would say is, so my background is also in infectious disease. Um mm-hmm epidemiology, but the part of it that I was most interested in was the time before, you know, a virus crosses over into the human population. And I'm wondering if there is any modeling tools that really address kind of surveillance of animals. And, you know, just before anything even enters the human population. Oh, yeah, that's an excellent question. I am not aware of any such tools. Uh, no. Yeah, I think it's a huge missed opportunity, unfortunately, it, you know, because I was always hoping something like that would come up or exist. But, yeah, yeah. And, and I think one way to look at this COVID is if we could have prevented, then how could it have happened? What did we need to stop it from becoming a pandemic? So that's where it's, that's a key to preventing future pandemics. If we can identify those things, that safeguards, right. and this probably that's the one example that you gave uh, falls into that category. If we have some tools to identify those any uh, crossovers happening early on and take actions uh, timely, that could help. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of it too is you know there's there's oftentimes a period of I think forgetfulness after a pandemic like after you know SARS happened there were there was a shutdown I think of a lot of the live animal markets in China and things like that for some time and then Hmm. things are just forgotten about and they reopened and um, I think that's that's a little bit of a shame because you know if you know that certain regions or certain activities are high risk 
it's it's kind of dangerous to forget, right? Like, right. <laughs> so um, I, I do wish there was there was more attention drawn to like true true prevention at the earliest roots of a problem. Um, and maybe someday you'll develop a model, or someone will develop a model to help kind of highlight those those uh, risk factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think that was pretty much all I had to. Yeah. Say, um, I have a question for you if you have a few minutes. I'm sure, if you don't mind answering. How, how did you get involved into the uh, the podcast and uh, what intrigued you? It's, it's, <laughs> it's a unique uh, uh, work uh, that you're doing. Uh, yeah, no, that's a great question. So, I consider myself most satisfied or most fulfilled when I'm doing creative work. So whether it's, you know, communications tools that you can, for example, you're, you're mentioning the problem of a, a siloed, siloed community. I see things like this podcast as ways to unify the public health community because a lot of times people don't know what everyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like there's a lot of opportunities for communications tools and other types of creative ventures to really unite people who are in the same space to learn about what everyone else is working on and create new collaboration basically reach people who are doing interesting work and talk to them about what they're doing and learn, learn, learn something that I wouldn't pick up from, you know, a textbook because conversation can bring out, you know, more interesting pieces of knowledge. So, so yeah, I enjoy the the conversations. And then I also think that, um, yeah, just being in the health communication space, I've worked in, in all different sides of it on the writing side, on the web design side, the tech side, the, now the audio side and i just uh enjoy diversity in the work that i i do day to day like putting my hands in a lot of different pots so that's so impressive yeah Yeah, thank you so yeah i'm really really happy to feature you by the way we're very impressed by your work and we think it's really important so we're happy to highlight it thank you it's 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 an honor i appreciate uh, the the opportunity Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.